We're going to talk about one of the oldest books in the Bible today. I think it's one of the oldest books that have, it's been beat up a little bit if you ask me, by the church. And we're going to break it down today and so you're, we're going to go through a lot of scripture. I hope that's okay. So it's either going to be really good or it's going to be a snooze fest for some of you. So if you need some coffee, I recommend it. Go get some. So uh, let's get the important stuff real quick. Any Michigan fans in here? Any Buckeye fans? What was that in the background? OH. Ah, I thought you said wait. No, that's what we're doing until next Saturday to see what happens. So let's pray real quick and get started. That sound good? So, Father, this morning we just thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Father God, that uh, you love us. You love us first. Um, you're not mad at us. You're for us. So, Father, we just speak over the word this morning that um, let it be a new revelation for someone here this morning of just how blessed we are, how blessed we are. We thank you, Father, for who you are. Give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So as I said this morning, I want to talk about one of the oldest books in the Bible. Um, this was, I don't want to say pushed upon me, but a few years back when Jeremiah were talking about starting youth camp, and we started it, um, I was at the campground with Olivia and Shelby, and some friends of theirs was over there, and we were talking about why we wanted to start youth camp. And You ever open your mouth and you go, yeah, that was dumb. I want to say it's one of those moments, but I was just speaking from my honest gut check where I was at. And she's like, well, why don't you guys start a camp for when there's already so many out there? And I said, because I'm sick and tired of people telling kids that God's in control. And she took offense to it. And I honestly was just, it was just reflex. Long story short, it bothered her to the point where she wasn't going to let her kids go. So she called me to talk about it. And long story short, as we were talking about my comment, why I made that, and just trying to teach her the word and start from the beginning to the end, because there's a lot there when you talk about is God in control or not in control, because that's a whole other teaching. And <clears throat> we get to the, about the middle of our conversation, she goes, yeah, but what about Job? I don't know if you guys have ever been in a conversation with people before, and you're talking about God and Jesus, and then you always get that comment, what about Job? What about Job? So this morning, we're going to break it down this morning. Um, I think we're going to take away some really cool stuff that um, even I learned as I was just, there's 42 chapters, there's a lot. But a big chunk of it in the middle is literally a bunch of guys back and forth, to be honest with you. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So one more thing before we get started. Everything we talk about today, I want you to make sure you go home, talk about with the Holy Spirit, study it, read it, sit with it, let him reveal the truth to you, because what I'm sharing today is just my revelation. Let your revelation be not Tom's, let it be from God, from the Holy Spirit. That's very vital. So let's talk about some key points real quick about Job, can we? To begin with, did you know that Job had no covenant with God? He was kind of in limbo. Most people don't know that. They think he was under a covenant. He wasn't. He didn't have anything. If we put it to like a timeline, Job was born or lived during the time of Abraham, so he wasn't actually one of Abraham's descendants. And he died before Moses. So he was in that in-between, if you will. 
Job had no written word of God. All he had was what was passed down to him from his father or his elders or, or the village. That's all he had. We have this. He had nothing. Just what was spoke to him. Therefore, Job also had no knowledge of the devil. He was not aware of the devil. He wasn't aware that he was the ruler of this world. So the man at this point, from what we know, is he pretty much lived in fear. They say he was a man of faith. We'll break that down a little bit, but I think he lived more in fear than he lived in faith. He had no weapons to fight with. He had no come with God. He was literally defenseless. And lastly, something we have that he doesn't have, he had no intercessor. Nobody. He was on his own. Why does all this matter? Because as born-again believers in Christ, disciples sharing the gospel of Jesus, like I talked about earlier, when you're having conversations with people about God, I used to talk about last week, you won't have this moment. What about Job? And you go, I don't know. Because everybody seems to always run back to that. What about Job? That guy went through a lot. Look what God did to him. We're going to break that down this morning. So we're going to be flying through a bunch of pages. I'm going to warn you right now, if you have your Bible, get your finger exercises going because we're going to be flipping some pages. If you have your little electronic device, your finger ready. So let's go to Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Did you hear that? And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of, of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we know what? He's pretty wealthy, right? He's a big dude. He's a pretty big guy in, their, in the east. And he was worried about his kids. I don't know that because he was burning offerings all the time for his kids because he was afraid they sinned all the time. I bet you I worry my kids all the time. I worry about them a lot. All right, verse 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God, who knows what the sons of God are? This one I did learn something new. What are the sons of God? Anybody know? Heavenly beings, angels. So this is something in the spiritual realm, not in the natural. This is something we're not, we don't physically see. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came, come, came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So the enemy is just scheming, right? Doing this typical thing, lurking around, seeing what's going on. Verse 8, this is where it gets interesting. You know, Isaac's been talking about context, right? Context matters. Here we go. The Lord said to Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. What does that sound like when we read that? It sounds like God's tempting Satan, saying, Hey, what about my servant Job? If you study that out and go through the Hebrew language and read it out, it actually reads more like, why have you set your heart upon my servant Job? Changes our perspective, doesn't it? A lot. It's not like about God offering Job. He's asking, why, are you, why do you have your eyes on my servant Job for? What are you looking at him for? What's, what's the deal? Because we know God's not tempting him because James 1.13 says what? Let no one say he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. A lot of us forget that. I'm guilty. Why have you set your heart on my servant Job? It'd be like me catching my kids sneaking oatmeal cream pies out of the cupboard all the time. And I'm on to them. So I'll ask him, have you considered taking an oatmeal cream pie out of the cupboard? I'm not seeking an answer because I already know the answer. I'm merely just pointing out the fact that I'm on to him. God was using the same tactic with the enemy here. He was fully aware of what was taking place. Verse 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely crease you to his face. What's Satan doing here? He's trying to go with God, trying to manipulate God, trying to get him to do something. Chip up on his word. <clears throat> Who did God give dominion to this world? Man, right? Read that in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. It says, Then God said, Let make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who blew it? God? Man, right? Man blew it. How do we know the enemy is in control? First uh, John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When Adam and Eve decided to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the two of them together yielded their God-given power over to Satan. God did not give it to Satan. Man did. Man did. <clears throat> Excuse me, i got to get a water here. Many people read verse 9 through 11 and come away thinking that Satan must get permission from God to cause suffering, sickness, death, to steal, to kill, destroy. And we have learned this is not the case. So how does God respond to Satan? Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. 
So then what happens? 13 through 19. Most of you know this. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the hedge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. <clears throat> Who said that? A guy said it, right? God didn't say that fire was from him. A guy said the fire from heaven. While he was still speaking, another also came and said that Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck all four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job, rose and t Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he worshipped. How do you respond? Verse 21. He said, Naked I come from mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. True story, right? I come to this world with nothing, and when I go out, I go out with nothing. Verse 21, this is where it gets interesting. We're still there. Then he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to ask one question there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who said that? Who said it? Did God say it? Job said it. There's a Christian song that comes on. Every time it comes on, I have to turn it off. I've got to be honest with you. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I don't know about you, but all that happened in a matter of conversation, one upon the other, and Job lost everything. What does Proverbs 19.3 tell us? The message version really sums it up really good for me. People ruin their lives by their own stupidity, so why does God always get blamed? Seems like a lot, huh? So what happens? Chapter 2, Satan tries the same song and dance before. Would you agree? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. We're hearing the same song and dance, right? And again, God reminds Satan that Job's life is already under the enemy's control. Let's read down here. Seven. Then Satan went out in his presence. The Lord smote Job with, with sores. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot shard to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. A pot shard, by the way, is a broken piece of ceramic. In case you're wondering, he's using a piece of glass to scrape his sores off. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I got a good feeling Job's wife must have not loved him very much. She's not very encouraging. 
Job knew God was now the author of all death, destruction, and sickness. Because he tells his wife what? But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I don't know about you, but if I lost him like that and my wife's against me, it'd be tough to keep my mind straight. It'd be tough. Let's continue. 11 and 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one of them, from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. When we read these three verses, we see three friends who are concerned and mourn with their friend, who literally is living a life of hell on earth. Would you agree? Job has been through a lot. He's been through a lot. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I am sure they meant well, but if we were to traverse through the next several chapters, they go from deeply concerned and mourning for Job to trying to point out to Job that God is the author of his destruction because of some great sin in Job's life. And Job pretty much is rebutting, rebutting those points back at them, that they don't, have, they don't know what they speak about. Your friends. Do you agree your friends are important? Can your friends help you in dire situations, or can they hinder you? Both. Job was experiencing this. Eliphaz, leader of the band, is trying to point out to Job in chapter 4 that the innocent does not endure such tragedies, that there must be some great sin in Job's life. And then Eliphaz blames God in verse 9. Bildad and Zophar are not much help either and continue in the following chapters of discouraging Job. Job's friends were trying to get him to admit that all this was because of his sin in his life. And remember what God said about Job in the beginning? What was he? A blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. He had a good heart. Does Job struggle? Absolutely. In chapter 3, Job absolutely struggling. He is lamenting, expressing his grief over what he is and has endured so far, but he still holds fast to, what God's, to, fast to God's goodness. Even to the point that Job, by chapter 6, was still challenging his friends to think differently. But by chapter 7, Job begins to direct his complaints toward God. The weight of this world, his circumstances, has him not thinking so clearly. These so-called friends, they speak their mind many times to show Job how wrong he is. But what we don't know is about chapter 32 is that there is a young man by the name of Elihu. Elihu, sitting on the outside of this conversation, listening, weighing, being respectful, and taking all this in. This reminds me of some wise words I was once given by a co-worker. You ever see two people arguing? Because that's what these guys are basically doing. They're back and forth about who's right, who's wrong. God did this. No, he didn't. You ever see two guys arguing? Two people. He told me, he says, never argue with a fool. Because when people walk by, they don't know which one the fool is. It's true. I've been guilty of it. Trying to prove that I'm right. Really, I'm just looking as much of a fool as the next person. I'm sure that Elihu 
felt watching these so-called friends banter back and forth, watching Job finally cracking under the weight of his experience. As Job finally breaks from what he knows is true and blames God for what he is going through. Chapter 13, verse 21, he says, Remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. I think the man was wore out. He's probably angry, prideful, a little arrogant. Read all this way out. Job begins to become arrogant, prideful, mostly, I'm sure, out of anger, frustration, fear, because he feels like God has not heard his voice, that his offering was not good enough. His flesh is speaking for him versus what he knows to be true. Finally, chapter 32. Young Elihu comes into play. He's had enough. He finally speaks up to get, his, to get Job and his three friends' attention. And he speaks truth. I didn't give this to you, Olivia, but I'm going to read a little bit. Verse 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger, Elihu, the son of, yeah, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. So Job is the point where he's justifying his whole situation. His anger had burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were three years, because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in their mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So he's ready just to let him have it. He's had enough. So he begins to speak truth. And after all this, well, I lost my second here. Hang on a second. He's had enough. He finally speaks up to get Job and his three friends' attention. He speaks truth. I want to encourage you this morning. We all need a friend like Elihu that will speak truth in our lives, even when we don't want to hear it. We need to hear it. Who is that Elihu in your life? This continues for the next few chapters, and Elihu is being very forthright without them and bluntly lets them know they do not know what they're talking about. And then Elihu sets them straight in chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. And he says to them, Therefore listen to me, young, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work, and he makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Sorry, good old dry mouth. So after all of this, God then finally speaks to Job. Chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job. Uh, the world when he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have an understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God's pretty much telling him, where were you? Look at me. I've created all this. Who were you? Pretty much you're just, he's pretty much talking, he's a peon. You're just man. You're not a God. 
God's revealing to Job how little Job really knows. 39. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the mouths, the months they fulfill? Or do you know that the time they give birth, they kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains, their offspring become strong, they grow up in open fields, they leave and do not return to them. What's Job do? When God gets done talking to him, he finally responds. Chapter 40. This is really important. Would you agree so far we've learned that God is not the, he was not the author of Job, Job's pain? The devil was the cause of it. God wasn't giving so much Satan permission because the dominion was no longer his. It was the devil's because man had it. So what's Job say? Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me, that you, have, that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble and tread down wicked with a stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. You know, people talk about how God's punishing you or trying to teach you something or give you cancer because there must be some sin in your life or teach you something. Here's a great example of how God was disciplining Job. How did he do it? Through his word. That's it. Through his word. That's what that does for us. final outcome. We're breezing right through this. That is awesome. We get to his confession. And a lot of Christians don't know this, but Job was blaming God. His friends is blaming God. What's Job confess? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand. Did you hear that? Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Here now I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard you by hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent 
in the dust and ashes. Job recants of what he had spoken. He has realized that God was not the one who gives and takes away. He takes back what he said. Job would let his emotions get in the way of what he truly knew to be true. And how good is God? What's he do for Job? Verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before him came to him, and they ate bread with him in the house, and they counseled him and comforted him for all the adversities the Lord had brought him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters, and on and on. He just was fully blessed, twofold. I know there was a lot, and we kind of screamed through it. But I feel like the whole point of today's teaching, going through all that word, was to give you a better background on one of the oldest books in the Bible. Context matters. Do not be afraid to go deeper in his word and let him reveal to you more of what has been done, afforded to you. God was good then. He's still good now. We still live in a fallen world. You know, as I, as I was asked to teach today, I prayed about this message and I didn't have the finish to it. You're like, like you got, like you want a conclusion. I just could not come. Like, what are you trying to show me, Lord? And I'm one of them weird ducks. I was asking the Holy Spirit all week long, I need something to help resolve this because I just don't have it. And I'm sleeping in bed Thursday morning, 1 a.m. I wake up to the Holy Spirit talking to me. You ever wake up to the Holy Spirit talking at 1 a.m. in the morning? I know what Danny Markley does, just ask me, he'll text you. Huh? You know it's true. But I'm laying in bed, and the Holy Spirit starts talking about Job, and he says to me, the best thing that a new covenant believer can take away from Job is that bad things still happen to good people in this fallen world. But for the new covenant believer, they have been blessed with many weapons, many tools to use to fight back with, to remind the enemy how defeated he is, because the battle's already won. Hebrews 8, 6. You got that, Olivia? But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. If you're in Jesus today, that is true for you. He's your mediator of a better covenant on better promises. And poor Job had none of that. Not an ounce. Yeah, he had God, but there was no covenant. How do I get all that? Isaac talked about how easy it is for us to obtain this truth in our lives last week. And I really want to reaffirm that this morning with you as we begin to close. 
Yep, you know me. Where was that? Everybody, 11.15. Give me a piano. How easy is it? It's pretty easy. Romans 10, 9 through 13. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite verses. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You got some disappointment in your life? Believe in Jesus, because I promise you, you're not going to be disappointed. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. As I prepared this morning, I kept being drawn back to a time when Sunday morning we were here, and someone felt led just to ask, there's somebody here today that is ready to accept. I feel like today is one of them days. I feel like there's somebody here who's just never made that step across that altar to say, I believe. Or they have doubt. They're not sure. Let's finalize that today because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't. Ephesians 14 says, life is like the morning fog. It's here one day and then it's gone. If that's you this morning and you're ready to confess Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want to give that opportunity. That's okay with you guys. So if you would, let's bow, my, bow your heads. And if we will say this prayer all out with me, if you're already a believer and you just know God is your God and Jesus is your Lord and you have the Holy Spirit, say it with me so they're not alone. Can you do that for me? And if that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you. There's no age limit on this. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. You know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? It's time to take that leap of faith and just say, I believe. So by your heads, here we go. Heavenly Father, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I confess in my mouth that you, Jesus, is Lord of my life. I believe in my heart that you rose from the dead so that I shall be saved. Thank you for forgiving my sins, for saving me, for setting me free, and for giving me eternal life with you. Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you proclaim that day of the first time, I want to welcome you personally to the family of God, that you're loved. He's not mad at you. He longs for you. He has so many better promises for you. Get into this. Find out what they are. This will change your life. It changed mine. That being said, know that you're loved. 
Enjoy your Sunday. It's rainy. It's something like a good day to go home and have a cup of coffee, sit with a blanket, and watch a movie or football. Yeah, there is football on Sundays, Isaac. In case you didn't know that. Know that you're loved by God, by those of us here, this family. He's not mad at you. He's for you. I love you guys. Have a great Sunday. You're blessed.